So if you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 2. If you don't, there should be a black hardback Bible in the seats in front of you somewhere. Um, or open your app. It'll make the next 45 minutes much more enjoyable to follow along. Luke chapter 2. Thank you, worship team, for taking us through some of those songs. Luke chapter 2. And uh, when you get there, could you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 1 and we're going to read through verse 21. You follow along as I read Luke 2, 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you, You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to celebrate Christmas in August. We thank you that that we have an opportunity maybe to to this morning look at at Christmas um, without um, jingle bells and a Christmas tree, or that we might be able to to see it in in its context. Lord, uh, show us um, what is the Christmas story. Show us what is not the Christmas story. And Lord, maybe this this morning as as we're um, four months away, four and a half months away from Christmas, that we might think about how we're going to celebrate Christmas this coming year. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to read your word. Um, We uh, pray for our brothers and sisters around the world who uh, this morning had to meet in hiding, in fear. Perhaps they could not meet because of um, persecution. Lord, we pray that you would keep them strong, um, that you would save their persecutors. And Lord, help us to be grateful for the freedom that we have to meet here this morning. So God, uh, make your word go forth, make yourself look great, and may you be the one that we glorify 
May you be the one that we learn more about. May you be the one that we love more because we've met together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, Last night, just to make sure I had it right, I uh, popped in uh, a movie you might be familiar with um, where uh, a resident blockhead walks across the stage with a uh, tiny little mangled tree. Um, He has ruined Christmas, and he says, Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Of course, I'm talking about Charlie Brown. And I thought about actually having Linus's uh, audio play through the system this morning when I read, but I thought that might be a little bit too distracting. Um, It's interesting, as you watch the Charlie Brown Christmas special, um, to see... Um, the, the focus turn to um, Scripture and to the story of the angels um, in the fields hearing about the birth of a baby. And Linus tells Charlie Brown that's what Christmas is all about. This is what Christmas is all about here in Luke chapter 2. And we have an opportunity this morning to uh, maybe dive in um, in a, a way and in a time of the year where we can maybe um, shed some of the, not necessarily bad, but um, accretions that build up around Christmas. Um, Some of the mythology that builds up um, around Christmas. Um, Our Christmas season is defined um, by shopping, um, by gifts, by pageants, by concerts, by colors, by lights. Um, And if we're not careful... Um, we lose the, the actual story. But what's really great is that we don't have to lose all of those other things if we know the story well and we know what we're celebrating. Um, we, can do, um, we can do wreaths and trees and lights, and we can do it well and we can do it best if we keep in mind what the actual story really is. And this is um, our purpose this morning. I've entitled uh, the message, Extraordinarily Ordinary. Um, and I think that that is coming through in the Christmas story is all of this extraordinary um, things going on in history. Um, and then all these very, very mundane, ordinary, boring aspects. These details that are just ordinary. They're just ordinary human details. Um, and they come together in this story. What we're, what we're looking at in Luke chapter 2 is what in theology we call the Incarnation. Um, it's not a flower, um, but to help us understand that word, it might help just to think of um, Southern California. There is a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of you are Hispanic. A lot of you took um, Spanish in high school because here we are in Southern California. And a lot of you like Mexican food. And when you go to get Mexican food, oftentimes you get some carne asada. And so I want you to think about incarnation and carne asada. Carne, all right? Okay, we're talking about flesh. We're talking about meat. When we talk about the incarnation, we're talking about something that's enfleshed, something that's enfleshed, um, an enfleshment, something that becomes meat, flesh. Um, this is what we're talking about in the incarnation. God becoming man. God adding flesh. This is something that, that blows our mind. In John chapter 1, um, the famous passage is that the word became flesh. Um, But that's in verse 14. We find out at the beginning of John chapter 1 that the Word was with God 
and the word was God. And that word, the word that was with God and the word that was God, that word became flesh. Um, Here's a quote from J.I. Packer from his classic book, Knowing God. He said this, The word became flesh. God became man. The divine son became a Jew. The Almighty appeared on earth as a helpless human baby, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught to talk like any other child. And there was no illusion or deception in this. The babyhood of the Son of God was a reality. The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction, listen to that, Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation. I like fiction. I like reading. Um, I like reading sci-fi and fantasy. I like reading big, bold epics and stories. And there is nothing in fiction that can compare to the idea, to the truth that God became man. And not only that, that God became a baby man. (laughs) Um, He didn't come... Um, in, uh, in power and in strength, but in weakness. And if you think about that, it really helps us to think about Christmas. So, as we look at the extraordinarily ordinary, look at Luke chapter 2. In those first three verses, that first point in your notes is that God is at work in the ordinary details. God is at work in the ordinary details. Verses 1 through 3 are kind of the historical background. We've got some names, we've got some places, we've got some context to just give us some of these details. What are these? These are names. I can't even pronounce that. What's going on here? What's going on? <laughs> um, this is a, a fantastic way for us to take a look at this passage and to think about what Luke is doing. What is Luke doing as he puts together this narrative? In chapter 1, which is 80 verses long, it took us several weeks just to get to chapter 1, um, in Luke chapter 1, we had angels appearing to uh, a barren couple. We had an angel appearing to a teenage virgin. We had um, all kinds of singing and Old Testament allusions, um, quotes of the Old Testament. And here we are in chapter 2 with a bunch of details. I think that Luke does this on purpose, not just to say that this is when this happened, but I think what Luke is doing is he's positioning two kings and two kingdoms. If you just think back and look to chapter 1, the songs made some fantastic claims. Look at the Magnificat that Mary sings in Luke chapter 1. Okay, She talks about her humble estate, and she talks about what great things that God has done, but look at what she says in the last uh, two verses, 54 and 55. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring. And here's a big word, forever. We're talking about big things. We're talking about promises kept. We're talking about 2,000 years of Israelite history. And on all of this, we're remembering Moses bringing the people out of Egypt. The judges ruling the land and things going out of control. King Saul... King David at the pinnacle, all these failed kings afterward, 
the temple in Jerusalem. All of these things, and this is what's being sung about, what's being hoped for, the anticipation of hundreds of years is said to be coming true. Not only that, but in Zechariah's prophecy, the Benedictus, which we studied last week, um, Zechariah says in verse 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us. Remember, horn is, is a picture of power. In the house of his servant David, this explicit mention of David, King David, the greatest king of the Israelites who subdued nations around. Remember, at the, at the time, the Israelites themselves are subdued by the Romans who have conquered them and defeated them and turned them into a vassal state. What is promised to happen by Zechariah is that the, the Son of the Most High is going to come. That the Lord himself will be coming. That salvation is coming. Forgiveness is coming. Light is coming to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. And in all of this, there's a promised king. Throughout the Old Testament prophets, there was a promised king to come. The Israelites needed a good king to rule them well. You and I need a good king to rule us well. And though this is the picture that's painted in chapter 1, and so chapter 2 starts with another king. A, a fantastic, magnificent king. Caesar, Augustus, Octavian, the great nephew of Julius Caesar, who was named Julius Caesar's heir, became the emperor in 27 BC. He rules the known world. He rules the Roman Empire. He was declared by the Roman Senate to be a son of God. This is not accidental. Okay? So here we have um, a ruler, an emperor, a king, who is called the son of God. And he decrees, because he has power and he has authority and he has sovereignty, he decrees that there should be a census, that there should be a registration around the Roman Empire. Why? Because he is great, and if he's going to build great things, he needs taxes from his people, and you can't get the right amount of taxes unless you know the right amount of people. This is a move that declares his power. And so a decree goes out that all the world should be registered. And it just so happens that Luke sets this as the first registration when, or you'll see a note in your Bible that might, it might be before Quirinius was governor of Syria. There are lots of, um, of contextual issues here that are debated. I'm not going to get into that this morning. Um, but if you have uh, an ESV study Bible, uh, or you have an NIV study Bible, or an apologetic study Bible, there's a lot of good answers there in your notes. Um, and you can come and ask questions afterwards. Uh, but again, here is a real person in a real place who is mentioned by Luke the historian, who's giving us a, a, a comprehensive history, who's given us something that is fact, not mythology. And he sets it in this place and in this time. And so verse 3, all went to be registered, each to his own town. Just these innocent, ordinary details. This is what happens. Um, hopefully you, every year, file your taxes. Um, in a few years, it'll be 2020, and we'll have another census. Um, these, are, these are details. By the way, these are details that not many of us like just revel in. Oh, it's almost tax time. I can't wait. Yes. Oh, am I going to get interviewed for the census? Am I going to get an extra thing to fill out for the census? Oh, I can't wait. Details to us are, are normally things that we try to get rid of, get out of the way, um, so that we can enjoy life. In all of these mundane details, God is at work. God is at work. In fact, I think it would, it would be 
it wouldn't be too far to say that God is at work in the details of all of our lives. In the boring, in the mundane, God is involved in the details of our lives because God is at work in history. He's not a distant God who wound up a clock, tossed it down and sits back and goes, oh boy, that's too bad. The whole story of Christmas is of God getting involved. Um, in a very real way, getting his hands dirty. And here we see God working in the details. The details that will move God's plan along. And so the census is declared by Caesar Augustus, the king, the emperor. Who, by the way, will die in AD 14, when Jesus is a young man. Jesus who we've seen promised in chapter 1, is promised a kingdom that will last forever. His kingdom will have no end. Caesar Augustus died. He ruled for a long time. He was a magnificent ruler. He brought in the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And yet he died in AD 14. Jesus' reign has been promised to have no end. And as we move along in the passage, we'll see that even from these details, God is beginning to move to create the the just exact right environment for introducing his son to the world. So point number two, we'll move along to verses four through seven. The promised king came in ordinary humility. The promised king came in ordinary humility. Take away all the Renaissance paintings, the Christmas pageants, the movies, the TV specials, and here it is, here we go, Four verses. Four verses. Four verses on the birth of Jesus. Matthew does one. So we have a total in the Bible of five verses detailing Jesus' birth. Five. Four of them today, and you'll notice how how simple they are. You'll notice how kind of general and vague they are. We don't hear a lot of details here but we hear what we need to hear from the Holy Spirit through the pen of Luke. Notice what we have and what we don't have. Verse 4, we have a geographical description of what's going on. Joseph um, goes from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, a place that he lives um, in in the north. Do I have it here? Oh, did we skip it? There we go. Okay, we got a map. Um, this is, again, to place this in real time. Um, again, this is not somebody going from the Shire to Mordor. We're not, ta- we're not going to Helm's Deep and Gondor. Okay, that's not real. <laughs> the, some of you have walked in this, these places. This really happened. Um, here's Nazareth in the north. Uh, there's the Sea of Galilee here to the east. And, and Jesus um, uh, is from Nazareth. He's called Jesus of Nazareth because Joseph and Mary live in the tiny village of Nazareth, which has at most a few hundred villagers at the time. Um, they make their way, because of this decree from Caesar Augustus, to the south of Israel, and they make their way down past Jerusalem, about six or seven miles past Jerusalem, to the town of Bethlehem. Um, depending on how the trip went, um, by the way, there's no donkey mentioned, um, there's a pregnant woman who is going down, and so we don't know if that slowed them down. Um, but they would have taken about four or five days to make this trip uh, down to Bethlehem. It is told to us in detail 
Joseph went up from Galilee, the region, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, the southern region, to the city of David, which in the Bible is generally um, seen to be Jerusalem, that David built Jerusalem, and so it's called the city of David. This is actually a little bit of a surprise that when he says the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, it's kind of like, oh, oh wait, so not the city of David that we're normally thinking, which I think is to jar us from, this is not happening in Jerusalem, the capital, where the temple is. This is happening in Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? Um, and why is he going there at the end of verse 4? Because he was of the house and lineage of David. Luke wants us to know that Joseph is from the house and lineage of David. He is of the tribe of Judah. He is in the tribe where royalty comes from. What's he doing? He's going to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. His pregnant fiance. Here they are, wandering into Bethlehem to be counted. Verse 6. I love this. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. You know, because that time happens. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. What are his measurements? We don't know. When was he born? Sometime. And wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. How many times did you have to push? This is, by the way, this is all very fresh for me, okay? (laughs) All right? Okay? How long was she in labor? Okay? Um, Who was there? We we don't know any of those things. This is what we know. Mary and Joseph went to Bethlehem and they had a baby, her firstborn son. He's wrapped in swaddling cloths. No big deal, by the way. Swaddling cloths are what they uh, did with their children. And uh, we think that a lot of it was to straighten their limbs. Um, And so they would wrap the baby and wrap the limbs you know, to keep everything straightened. Again, we're not talking like a ton of medical sophistication here. Um, we're talking about a high infant mortality rate. And so the baby is born. Oh, goodness, the baby's healthy. Wrap the baby up. Put the baby in a feeding trough. What? <laughs> okay, again, here is the setting. Augustus, Caesar, throne, Rome. Here comes the king. Here comes the king in Bethlehem, David city. He's in a main... Did they, did they clean that thing out first? Because you're not placing my baby in a place where cows salivate. That does not seem very healthy to me. That would not have gone over well at chalk last week had they tried to put my son in a feeding tr- Oh, it's okay. You know, I'll just put him anywhere here. No, you can't do that. This is the birth of Jesus. Um, we've, we've got no animals mentioned. We've got no stable mentioned. There's no innkeeper. There's no mean innkeeper, John. Um, there's... <laughs> there's, there's, there's actually not a lot here. Um, there's debate over where exactly they are. And I read some of the commentaries um, this week, and uh, a lot of people think that um, inn is actually not the correct translation, that it's probably more like guest room. Um, which may have been um, the outside quarters um, or the place that was partially covered um, where the animals um, would uh, kind of drift in and out. Uh, Perhaps there was a yard and then they would come in for some shelter um, because they're staying with relatives. Uh, We don't know a lot, so let's be careful not to speculate too much. But they're not in the best accommodations. And for the the coming king, this is certainly ordinary. 
This is certainly humble. Um, it is, it's very important um, that we see God working here in mysterious ways. If you had started reading Luke and you never heard the Christmas story before and you read these songs in chapter 1, you would not expect chapter 2. This is, this is not what we're expecting. I mean, angels showed up for goodness sake. I mean, we know Mary and Joseph are kind of poor. Or, or, well, they're not like, you know, wealthy or rich. They live kind of out of the way in a podunk town. But maybe, you know, God could come in and and all of a sudden there's this beautiful hospital room. No, this is the humble um, coming into the world of Jesus. The point here in verses 4 through 7 is that we have a, a fulfillment of the promise to David that someone from his line would sit on the throne. And it was, it was someone from David who needed to come and rescue the Israelites. We read this throughout Isaiah. Um, the prophets mentioned David himself coming or a, a descendant of David. Luke is very clear. It's the city of David. Joseph is the house of lineage of David. It's the town of Bethlehem. If we know our Old Testament, we know that David is from Bethlehem. Um, this would make sense to us. This would connect things up for us. And yet we see the humble birth of the Son of God, and it reminds us of what we see that Paul wrote in Philippians 2, that he emptied himself. That the Son of God emptied himself. He came as a servant. He came in humility. And there is certainly a lesson for us here. That if we are following this humble servant, that we ought to be humble servants. There's no place for arrogance and pride in Christianity because the story is not one of arrogance and pride. The story shouldn't lead us to any arrogance or pride. In fact, Luke's about to show us that this story, this king is for we the people, the ordinary people. We the, who's that? Who's that guy? Who's that person? Never heard of him. This is who this Jesus has come for. Um, what are your expectations? Um, th- this is a, a something that I think is important that Luke is, is addressing here. Is that we need to have our expectations be governed by Scripture and governed by the expectations that God gives us. Um, our expectations specifically for our family, um, for our own achievements. What are your expectations and what are they governed by. See, Jesus came not according to necessarily the expectation. So when things don't go your way and you don't get what your expectation was, how do you respond? I mean, Mary is, is a perfect example of this. Hey, Mary, I'm an angel. Ah! <laughs> hey, Mary, you're not married. You're a teenager. You're going to be pregnant. What? Uh, whoa, what? <laughs> this is not a good story. I don't like this story. Okay? Mary says, let it be to me as you said. She submits herself to God and his plan and perhaps gives up her expectations for what God is going to do. Now, that's it. There it is. There's Christmas. There's the birth story. Now we shift to some other characters in verse 8. And so point number three in your notes is the earth-shaking birth announcement came to ordinary, no-name people. Oh, wow. We're way behind. There we go. The earth-shaking birth announcement came to ordinary, no-name people. And I use no-name not as a derogatory, but as an example that we don't know anybody's name here. (laughs) They literally are no-names. 
We don't know their names because the scene shifts to the fields outside of Bethlehem. Uh, they may have looked something like this. Here's a shepherd um, in the fields out of modern-day Bethlehem. Um, that is not too far away from what it would have looked like 2,000 years ago, except it's daytime because that works better for pictures. Okay, here are some sheep. Here's a shepherd, okay, out in the, the rocks, and there's not a lot of green there. Um, here are the shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Out in the fields of Bethlehem. Why shepherds? What's, what's going on with shepherds? Why, why is this happening? Because in verse 9, we have an angel of the Lord appearing to them. Now, the angel of the Lord doesn't normally just appear to anybody. So why in the world would the angel of the Lord appear to shepherds? And why in the world would the host of heaven rip open the sky, have the glory of God shine all around, sing a song, and then disappear for shepherds in a field? Um, I think there's probably some connection to the most famous shepherd who came from Bethlehem. His name is David, who watched his father's sheep in these fields. There certainly is connection there. And perhaps there's more connection. Um, pretty much the three greatest Israelites were Abraham, Moses, and David. And all of them at some point in their lives were shepherds. Um, so this is interesting, the, the connection here. Um, some commentators point out that, uh, that shepherds were not seen um, as um, kosher. Um, they, but, but that may be a later tradition. Um, it's not clear in this passage um, that shepherds are despised, but they're just shepherds. I mean, like, they're just, they're shepherds. They're out in the field. They're watching sheep. They're, they probably stink. Um, they probably smell like sheep, okay? Um, and here they are out in the fields. Now, perhaps another thing that God might be doing is, is um, referring to Ezekiel chapter 34. In Ezekiel chapter 34, um, God, through the prophet Ezekiel, indicts the leadership of Israel for not being good shepherds. Um, it's a whole, a detailed um, critique of the leaders of Israel not being good shepherds. He says, you're eating the sheep. Uh, hello, <laughs> shepherds don't eat their sheep. They, they keep them. They watch over them. Their rod and their staff, <laughs> right? They're protecting the sheep. Perhaps what's going on here um, is that God is going to actual, real shepherds to proclaim the great shepherd of the sheep who is to come. Regardless, these people are of low status, okay? They're of low status. Um, they're just ordinary people. We don't know their names. They're just shepherds. And they, like any good person in the Bible, when an angel arrives, they freak out, as you and I would as well. Okay, they're filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, <laughs> Which I always feel like, you'd be like, but you're scary. <laughs> Can I be a little scared? You're scary. Okay, but isn't it, isn't it good of God? Isn't it kind of God that when angels show up, they almost always say, hey, don't be afraid. Like, I'm not here to zap you. <laughs> okay, I'm here with good news. In fact, um, that's exactly what these angels say. Look at verse 10. The angel said to them, fear not, for behold. That, that's kind of like a dun -dun -dun -dun. Here comes something really important. Okay. For behold, I bring you gospel. I bring you good news. Not only that, it's great news. It's good news of great joy. And it's for all the people. 
Why is he telling this to shepherds again? Do you understand this? I mean, this is not like he showed up um, in the middle of the market in Jerusalem and said, hey, all you people, I got good news. There's a few shepherds out in the field. Like everybody missed this one. You kind of like wonder like if some guy like woke up in the middle of the night in a town of Bethlehem and he walked outside and he's like, what is going on out there? And then it disappeared. (laughs) He's like rubbing his eyes like, whoa, what happened out there in the field? Because nobody saw this. It was just the shepherds. But they have good news, great joy. It's for all the people. This probably refers to all the people of Israel. Luke is pretty clear that he's keeping the focus on, um, on Jesus being the Messiah, Israel's Messiah. He's fulfilling Jewish scriptures. So, of course, we could, what we find out later is that it is for all the people, but here it's, it's, it's mainly for all the Jewish people. And he gives the good news. The good news is that someone's been born in the city of David. Right over there in Bethlehem, someone has been born. This extraordinary Vision of angels appears to very ordinary people about a very ordinary event. Someone was born. Yep. That happens. (laughs) Yes, it does. What's extraordinary is who this person is. So over there in the city of David, shepherds, notice there's a savior. And we got three titles here. Three titles that are very important. This is the only place in the gospels where all three titles combine together. And there's actually only one other place in the entire Bible where these titles all come together, and that's in Philippians 3.20. But here we see there's a Savior, um, a deliverer from enemies. In the Old Testament, this is applied to God himself. He would be the Savior of his people Israel. We saw this in Isaiah chapter 45 where Yahweh himself is the Savior. Uh, In the Old Testament, there's deliverers like the judges. Um, They are saviors of their people. Um, oftentimes in the Roman world, Roman rulers would be called saviors. They would be called soter, the, the Greek for savior, because they saved their subjects from barbarians, um, or they expanded the borders of the empire. Therefore, the emperor was the savior. Here is a baby born in Bethlehem who's the savior. Now listen, the baby born in Bethlehem can't save anybody. Okay? at the At the moment, right? I mean... This is why this is extraordinarily ordinary. Um, This baby can't do anything but eat, poop, and sleep and cry, right? I know that away in the manger said, but, okay, I think he cried, all right? There's there's crying going on. Um, There's, that's it, right? Jesus didn't come out and be born and be placed in a manger and go, okay, everyone, here's how this is going to go down, right? He came out and went, Right? That's what happened. And then Joseph changed his diaper. Right? I mean, like, this is the ordinary that we're introduced here. But yet, this person is a savior. Not only that, the next, fra- the next title is he's Christ. Christ means anointed one. I mean, it's, it's the Greek word for anointed one. The Hebrew word for anointed one is Mashiach, Messiah. The same, the same word, just in two different languages, okay? He's the Messiah. He's the Christ, the anointed one. The, the promised one. Remember Saul and David were anointed to be king? It was this symbolic picture of God's spirit coming on them to enable them to lead the people well. He is the promised one. And he is also the Lord. Now this is interesting. He has sovereignty. He has authority. He's the master. All three of these titles are applied to a baby. 
Not only that, a Jewish baby whose country is ruled by Romans. In fact, there's no chance for him to be king. The king of the Jews at the time is Herod, who's only a half-Jew, and really doesn't care much about Yahweh. Uh, He just wants to keep the people happy. This is it. This is the world that this Savior, Christ the Lord, is born into. And yet they get a sign. Here's a sign, guys. Go find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. That's not the sign. All the babies would have been wrapped in swaddling cloths, okay? But the sign is that there's a baby lying in a manger? So go find the baby in the town. If you find one in a manger, you found him. That's the sign. That is super weird. That's just really, really weird. Okay, if you find the baby in the manger, you found the right one. And then all of heaven opens up and the, the multitude of the heavenly host, the heavenly army, praises God saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Um, quickly, uh, this is not uh, a statement of God being, um, God being really kind um, and giving peace to those people who are doing a great job. Hey, great job, guys. Going to give you some peace. Great job. Good work. Way to work for that peace. Uh, the picture of, of the, the language here is that God, on, is on, on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased is the picture of those whom God has had favor on, like Noah, who found favor in the eyes of God. Um, the picture is one of grace, that God is giving peace. Peace is coming to those whom he has blessed with his presence, whom he has blessed with his favor. This is what we need, don't we? We need peace. Yesterday in Charlottesville, Virginia, there was a lack of peace. Um, what happened yesterday in Charlottesville, Virginia, was um, not just distasteful. Um, it was wrong. And not only was it wrong, but it's sinful. The racism that we saw displayed in Charlottesville should disgust us, not because of the Heil Hitlers, but because of the sin against people made in the image of God. No matter the color of their skin, the color of their hair, the color of their eyes, who they descend from, we, as Paul said in Acts 17, God made from one man all the nations. That means we have a common root. There's no reason for any race to claim superiority over any other race. What happened yesterday in Charlottesville, Virginia, is anti-gospel. It is anti-gospel. There is good news for people, Revelation says, from every nation, tribe, people, and language. Listen, this gospel, this good news, which many of these white supremacist, neo-Nazi, alt-right people claim to be Christian, they miss out that this good news, this gospel, this Christianity was first proclaimed in Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek from people with dark skin in the Middle East, thousands of miles away from Europe and America. It's being proclaimed from this stage in English and in Spanish later today only because it got here. We are the ends of the earth. We are. Look around. Look at, look at, the, look at the skin tones and the eye colors and the hair colors that we have around in this room. Isn't that beautiful? That's great. It, it reflects the creativity of God. 
And so the so-called alt-right, they're no different than the KKK or neo-Nazis or the Nazis before them. They are racists and they are denigrating the image of God in people that are different from them. The old song says, red, brown, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And Jesus loves the racists in Virginia who killed a person yesterday and the many that were injured. We pray today for peace, the peace that God can bring. And Christians are people of peace, and we must stand up for peace. Paul says in Romans 12, 21, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with tweets and angry Facebook posts. That's not what Paul said. Overcome evil with what? With good. Overcome evil with good. Ephesians 5, 11, Paul says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. We want to expose this and we want to pray for these racists because we ourselves are not uh, immune from sin. And I dare say that we are not immune from the sin of racism. So we pray for these men, for these women, those who've been hurt, those who lost a loved one yesterday in Charlottesville, Virginia. We need a Savior. And He has come. He is Christ the Lord. Point number four in your notes, promises kept leads to wonder and praise. Promises kept leads to wonder and praise. We talked about promises last week, that God always keeps his promises. And here is the promise kept. The angels in verse 15 go away. <laughs> they appear and they go away. The shepherds have a little conference and they say, let's go find out. Let's go, let's go figure this out. Let's go see what the Lord has made known to us. They get up and they go with haste. Verse 16, they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. They found the sign. It's true. God keeps his promises. He said it. They found it. It's true. When they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. So it seems that they show up at the room, the cave, the place where the family is, and they tell the family, hey, guess what? Angels just showed up to us, which Joseph and Mary a few months ago may have been freaked out about. But now like, oh yeah, angels, they're showing up all over the place. Okay, told these guys to come here and find you. We found you. Yay, okay. And here's a baby. Aww. That's the Savior? Better raise him well, Joseph and Mary. (laughs) No pressure. (laughs) This is an extraordinarily ordinary moment. Apparently there's more that are around them. Apparently they told more people because in verse 18, all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. That means they were amazed. They marveled, which continues to happen in Luke's gospel. These are marvelous things. We should marvel at them. Hark the herald angel sing. I know the song. I can do it while I'm looking at something else. I don't have to pay attention to what I'm doing. Right now, when we get to sing these songs, we get the opportunity to, to wonder, to give praise to God for what he's doing, which takes work because we know this story. I know the Christmas story. One of my girls a few weeks ago said, I know that story. <laughs> oh, danger, danger. <laughs> right? I do too, but it leads to wonder and to praise. This proclamation of the good news, there's sharing of it, there's testimony given to that. All who heard it wondered. I wonder, when you hear it, do you wonder? As you wander? Do you, are you amazed? Or has it worn off? Maybe because it's August, we can focus a little bit more on this. Um, but what are you going to do this Christmas, this December? 
What are we going to do as a church? What are we going to do as families to not lose sight of the wonder? Because there's lots of things competing for our wonder. Main Street, USA. Disneyland, California. Wonder. Oh, it smells wonderful too. Lights, gifts, new things. They're competing for our wonder. This Christmas, let's make sure we're amazed and marvel at the right things. See what Mary does, verse 19? She treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. I wonder, I wonder at Christmas, um, do we let Christmas go without, as families, as individuals, without actually reading the text and pondering this amazing, extraordinarily ordinary moment when God came to earth? The shepherds go back to the field, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Verse 21, eight days later. What? <laughs> That's it? That's it. That's it. There's the story. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. The shepherds go back. By the way, more time spent on the shepherds than is spent on Jesus' birth. More time spent on the people hearing about Jesus' birth than on Jesus' birth. Let's be careful about the mythology and the traditions that have sprung up around Jesus' birth. Okay, no crying he made. Yeah. Okay, right? No, he, he's, he's fully baby man. Jesus is man. And verse 21 is where we'll end. This is kind of our postscript, our PS here. Believers obey in the ordinary. Believers obey in the ordinary. Look at verse 21. At the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Two acts of obedience. First act, On the eighth day, Jesus, the boy, the Jewish boy, was circumcised. Just as as God told Abraham in Genesis that God's people were to do to mark them out as different, as separate, as unique. Jesus is circumcised, which means Joseph and Mary keep the law. They're pious Jews. They're keeping the law. They're obeying God. And then they name him Jesus, which they were told to do before he even came to be in Mary's womb. Name him Jesus. Matthew tells us, because he will save his people from their sins. Jesus, he's here. He is circumcised. He's a Jewish boy in a backwater town in the corner of the Roman Empire. And he is the promised Messiah. He is Christ the Lord. Um, I just want us to think about this is obedience, the importance of obedience. Now, the Bible tells us that to obey is better than sacrifice. And, and that doesn't mean obeying in only great things. You're going to have a son. Name him Jesus. Oh, okay. Love, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Obey. Wives, submit to your husbands and everything as to the Lord. Obey. Children, obey your parents. Obey. The instructions that are given to us. We obey in the ordinary. And when we obey in the ordinary, we are different than the people around us. And we show them a different Lord. We show them a different standard. That we want to obey God because he has been so good to us. And he made us and he knows what's best for us. When we sin, 
we thumb our nose at God. I know better than you, God. I know how to live my life. Forget you. I want to indulge in this. That's called rebellion. That's punished with God's wrath. Listen, when we are given instruction by God, it is for our good and his glory. He made us. Does the clay say to the potter, why did you make me this way? The answer is no. The answer is obey God in the ordinary. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can sing about the son you sent to save us, the Messiah, the Savior, our Lord. Jesus, we thank you for what you subjected yourself to, how you lowered yourself and emptied yourself to come as a servant so that you might one day die on the cross for our sins, that you would raise up between heaven and earth, take all the wrath that God had for our sins and took it upon yourself. What great love you have loved us with. We thank you, Lord, for this. Now let us go from this place, Lord. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to live lives of obedience in the ordinary. This week we have so many mundane, ordinary, checklist kind of things to do. Lord, help us to be faithful in those things. And when those, every once in a while, every once in a while, when those extraordinary things come around, Lord, may we be faithful to obey you even then. And now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.